Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, and especially welcome to all the new folks that we have here joining us this evening. Good to see you. And uh, we're picking up in the first with the first volume of the Evergatinos. And tonight we are on page 287 with letter D, about three quarters of the way down the page. If you don't have the book, don't worry about it. We'll be reading it out loud verbatim and uh, and discussing it as we go along. We have been talking about the actual practice of asceticism in these recent hypotheses. What's that look like? And we've talked a lot about the value of it and the importance of it, uh, certainly for quite a while now, but we've been looking in particular how it's enacted in, in these monks' lives and then looking how it might affect ours as well. And so this is what we've been considering, and uh, we will move on in the next hypothesis, in particular to obedience, uh, because he's already, all, the fathers are already speaking here in this hypothesis about a uh, spiritual elder and following his guidance and counsel in the ascetic life, what practices are to be embraced, even when it is arduous or when it seems to be something that goes against one's sensibilities, that... Uh, there is a kind of trust and love in that relationship and uh, a wisdom that arises from experience. And, uh, and so, as we've talked about, this was a very important relationship in the lives of the monks and uh, that we aren't Christians in isolation, that there's always kind of da danger in walking the, the Christian life uh, without uh, some kind of guidance from another or some check on our perspective on reality or the way that we're entering into the faith. And so that's what we're looking at currently. So again, we're on page 287, letter D. Abba Arsenius said to Abba Alexander, when you have finished splitting your palm branches, come and eat with me. But if guests come, eat with them. So Abba Alexander worked attentively and quietly without hurrying himself. Now, when it came time to eat, he still had some palm branches left. When Abba Arsenius saw that Abba Alexander was late, he ate since he thought that there surely must have been visitors. Later on in the evening, Abba Alexander showed up and the elder asked him, did you have guests? No, he replied. Why then did you not come when it was time to eat? Abba Arsenius asked a second time because you told me, come when you have finished splitting your palm branches. I carried out your commandment and did not come earlier because I only just now finished. When Abba Arsenius heard this, he marveled at the scrupulosity of Abba Alexander and said to him, you should eat more often so that you can perform your prayer role and you should drink water or otherwise your body will quickly become sick. And so the elder here marvels at the, his disciples obedience, that his fidelity to fulfilling his role of the day, of making uh, certain, using the palm branches to make whatever he was making, mats at times that they would then sell in the market, uh, and putting off his eating in order to fulfill his obedience. And if you remember, we've talked uh, in the past about uh, within the monasteries, they would refer to their work of the day as their obedience. So in fulfilling whatever task was given to them was uh, being obedient to their elder, whether it's the abbot or the novice master or whoever it might be who was responsible for them. And, uh, and so the elder here marvels at this young monk's ability to be attentive to what he was asked to do, even at having to extend his uh, fasting for a longer period of time. And so in, in the face of that, uh, even though he's pleased with the obedience, he wants him to reshape it. You know, don't weaken yourself so much by your fasting that you're unable to do your task of the day or that you weaken yourself too much to make sure that you give yourself enough food and water uh, so as not to become, become weakened. And so, uh, and both, you know, I think it gives us a good example of, of the wisdom of an elder, but also of the, uh, what, what it looks like to be obedient to one's elder. That here is a kind of scrupulosity, attentiveness. Uh, I don't want to use scrupulosity in 
uh, you know, has a lot of negative connotations, of course, that sometimes people can be driven by anxiety in regards to spiritual practice, but his uh, attentiveness to his elders' wishes, uh, even at the personal cost of not eating. Uh, but we also see the wisdom of the elder of, you know, seeing this, not driving him too hard, warning him uh, to make sure that he gives himself enough. Number two, Abba Abraham once visited Abba Ares. While they were sitting down, a brother came to the elder and said to him, tell me, please, what must I do to be saved? Go, replied the elder, and sit in your cell for a year, eating bread and salt every evening, and afterwards come back and I will tell you. The brother actually departed and did as he had been advised. After a year, the brother returned. It so happened that the Abba Abraham was there. The elder told the brother again, go and fast this year as well, eating every two days. When the brother had departed, Abba, I'm sorry, Abba Abraham asked Abba Ares, why when you speak to all the other brothers, do you put them under a light yoke while you load this brother with heavy burdens? I responded to the brothers who came, who come according to what they ask of me. But this one here is a true struggler, and he comes to hear God, and he carries out whatever I tell him diligently and precisely. That is why I speak the word of God to him. So we've heard this reference a number of times now within the Evergatinos of one who's a struggler, uh, a distinction that's sort of interesting that I honestly hadn't heard used in any of the other writings of the fathers that uh, I've come across. But uh, it is used to describe those who are particularly obedient, but more than just obedient, who really have a zeal for the Lord and seeking him in their life and have a zeal for the ascetic life who are willing to do whatever is necessary uh, to uh, purify the mind and the heart, to order the passions and the desires toward God. And this is what Abba Abraham sees in this young monk, that here is one who's, who's willing to be exact in his obedience, even when it's very arduous, as we see. Go away and fast, and, and go away, stay in your cell and pray and fast and eat once a day, having bread and, and salt. Uh, and, uh, and he actually fulfills it. And uh, we, we know that you know, from the Desert Fathers that they didn't lightly receive somebody into the monastic life, that they were clear that it wasn't for everyone, in fact, for very few to enter into the desert and embrace this kind of asceticism. Uh, but here we see the particular zeal of one who is a struggler. And I think when we look at our own spiritual life, uh, and when we examine our hearts, it's not a, a bad question uh, to ask ourselves. Do we see something of a struggler within us? In the sense, do we see the desire that we've so often talked about and the fathers have talked about, the desire for God that leads us to focus upon him in everything that we do throughout the course of the day and that leads us to... Uh, uh, have a willingness to simplify our lives so that we can open up uh, that space for the, a deep kind of prayer, that we simplify our lives in such a way that we set aside those things that can be distractions from embracing the will of God in our life. We're, you know, fulfilling our own desires or what we think our needs are, uh, rather than listening on this very deep level. And in the last sentence of this um, little section here, he says, he carries what, out whatever I tell him diligently and precisely. This is why I speak the word of God to him. He has come, uh, and right before it, and he comes to hear God. So he comes to the monastery, and he, he seeks to live in obedience in order that he might hear God more clearly, that the obedience, ab adore, is in order to hear God with a greater clear, clarity. The etymology of the word uh, is, is precisely tied to, to hearing, to listening. 
So obedience isn't a kind of slavishness to another or simply blindly following another's will, but behind it must be this greater desire to hear the word of God within our hearts, that the more that we are conformed to Christ, the more that we seek to fulfill the word of God, to be obedient to the word of God in our lives, the more that we are going to seek to be obedient. Because we know that when we are setting aside our own willfulness on multiple levels, it, uh, it allows us to hear that, uh, that word of God uh, with a greater clarity, that we are setting aside a passion uh, that uh, not only blinds us, but makes us deaf to the word of God. And um, I've, I've liked how the fathers within the Avercatinas have often spoken about obedience. Uh, we've, we've heard them describe it as making a person a confessor of the faith, that when a person is obedient, they are in particular conformed to Christ, or in a special way conformed to, to the one who, in obedience, takes upon himself our flesh, uh, and in that flesh makes himself obedient even unto death on the cross. He, he becomes a slave and a servant of all. And so the person who embraces a life of obedience in a special way, in their very being, in their very actions, bears witness to Christ and the mystery of the incarnation all the way through and the mystery of the and the paschal mystery in its fullness without having to say a word. And I think it's an important thing to think about, especially when we live in such a wordy society where we talk a lot about Jesus and we talk a lot about the faith, uh, but not necessarily bear witness uh, to the gospel or interiorize <laughs> the, the gospel in a very deep way. And, uh, you know, part of the reason we read the monastic writings is to interiorize what it is that they're talking about, not to mimic them in our day-to-day -day life, but to interiorize the path to virtue and to interiorize how it is that they were so attentive to the gospel in their life and internalized it. And, um, and so... You know, to look at obedience in this way in our day and age, I think is, is very important because we've, we rest so much upon private judgment and private opinion and to be able to silence the heart, but also to let go of one's will in such a way that we are conformed to Christ opens us up to hearing that word of God in a deeper fashion. And, you know, I know there are a lot of distinctions that we have to make you know, in regards to how we understand obedience. And, and we've talked a lot about how the father said not to do this indiscriminately, that one would choose uh, an elder, again, who has lived the life and where there is a true kind of wisdom, that the, it's not to be equated with abuse, uh, but is to be rooted, again, in this desire, desire for God. Uh, a couple of comments here. Paul wrote, uh, how would one differentiate between zeal and scrupulosity? It's a good question. That uh, Because zeal can often give itself, become scrupulosity. Uh, that uh, if we are driven by uh, something that is compulsive within us, uh, which often is tied to a kind of anxiety, this feeling of needing to be able to control something that feels uncontrollable, whether it's in the mind, in the heart, our thoughts, or experiences in the life, that gives rise to a kind of obsessive compulsive uh, behavior or pattern of thought. And certainly this can touch the religious and spiritual life as well. And so a person can embrace asceticism more as a defense mechanism against anxiety because it gives this sense of control and certain aspects of the ascetic life can also change one's emotional state, like fasting, for example, that uh, it uh, humbles the mind and body in a radical way and can bring about a kind of peace of mind and heart 
in such a way that it can deepen one's prayer life. But fasting to the extreme can also change brain chemistry, one's mood. So if one is in a state of depression or deep anxiety, they might gravitate towards certain ascetic practices in order to change their mental state. And so uh, those who are elders or spiritual directors have to be very attentive to this because it does emerge often and manifest itself in various aspects of the spiritual life. Zeal would be driven by desire by love for God and avoid excess uh, that, you know, one that is rooted in the wisdom of the, the fathers knows that excess in either direction uh, can be problematic. And so to go too far in one's fasting would be to weaken the body and perhaps make oneself sick and incapable of ent entering into the ascetic life or could lead one into deep pride. And so zeal has to be tempered and directed by love for God, not by our own willfulness or our own uh, uh, vision of what holiness uh, or sanctity looks like. And this is why living in obedience to an elder who has experiential knowledge becomes so important because it guards and protects us precisely from that, of trusting in our own judgment and then perhaps falling into extremes, either of the, the practice or, uh, or falling into pride on a spiritual level. Okay, so very important question and uh, and it's why I've emphasized so often how, how frequently the fathers come back to desire as being the driving force in the spiritual life. That while one is always struggling with the passions and appetites, it's still uh, the struggle is rooted in the desire to move toward God and to give oneself over to God and love more freely, to remove any impediment to our loving or giving ourselves in love. And absent that desire, then we fall into a kind of stoicism or a scrupulosity, again, where the asceticism becomes a defense, a defense mechanism on a psychological level. Any follow-up, Paul, to that question, or was that? Okay. Uh, Babington, or Babby writes, hmm. Perhaps I'm being ruled by flesh at the moment, but I feel resistant to this uh, as the word of God. If I heard correctly, the teacher led the seeker of God to starve himself potentially very destructively in uh, year two. I don't see that as God's love. But again, I'm missing something as uh, I'm distracted by cooking for my dogs. <laughs> uh, I'm with you there on that one. Uh, I, I get that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this is very difficult because the elder uh, takes this very important position within an individual's life that this ab adore, you know, to listen with exactness is, is meant to lead a person to listen with exactness to the word of God. And so the two should be indistinguishable and this is often emphasized within this relationship between the spiritual elder and the one that he's guiding. And uh, again, it has to arise out of deep experience and, uh, and in order that there might not be some distortion. Now for us, you know, certainly fasting, uh, you know, every single day uh, would not be in the picture or would be something that would only emerge uh, and in very limited circumstances, but we've often talked before, and I'll just try to go through this quickly, that the fathers of the desert practiced typically what was called a regular fast, that was a fast every single day, that the, the tie between fasting and prayer was very powerful. When one would humble oneself in mind and body, that the prayer often became deepest, that the heart and the mind would still and become calm. And so uh, 
often before the fast, it would break, but they would not extend that fast to extremes. So every day there was a certain amount that they were to eat, again, in obedience to their elder, and a certain amount that they were to drink so that they would not uh, take it to extremes. Uh, if uh, in this example, if he extends it uh, uh, to a second day, I think that is unusual. And I think part of it is because he sees in him this struggler that has this deep thirst for God, but also this deep desire to hear God, to listen to his word. And so, you know, he allows him or even guides him to deepen that fast because he's proven that throughout that first year that physically and spiritually he was capable of maintaining that obedience. And so he does not seek to, to quench that thirst for God, but allow it to, to deepen. Uh, now, in my judgment, he, he wouldn't allow him uh, to go beyond that. Certainly, uh, they were pretty clear about not extending that to the point of weakening oneself to the point of starvation. Uh, but, you know, I understand the resistance there to this being the word of God. But I, again, we, I think we have to understand the nature of the relationship between elder and disciple. And that it was a unique relationship, one of love, and again, one rooted in this deep experience where the elder is responsible for the welfare and the uh, spiritual well-being of his disciple. And so it was no light thing in either direction that uh, the elder was bound to offer guidance that was rooted in uh, a life that was, uh, was holy and also had arisen out of this experience, but is held morally responsible before God for the well-being of his disciple. And it was only in this sense that these individuals would embrace this path of obedience, you know, having this kind of trust in the elder. Now, would we do this today? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I think we would receive the counsel of, you know, confessors, of spiritual directors, uh, but uh, we don't live in the desert. We have not entrusted ourselves uh, to an elder in this sense. We are not revealing, you know, our thoughts and every thought that we have during the day to an elder. We're not living in this kind of relationship. Uh, now, it might exist within certain religious communities, uh, but even there, I, I think it's much more tempered than what we would see within the Desert Fathers. Um, you know, this is a unique period within the life of the church. And I think we don't want uh, to forget that. Uh, it's forever etched as being something that guides us in the spiritual life because it arises out of the period of martyrdom in the church, baptism by blood. And when the church is embraced by uh, the culture, then what we see arising is a, a, a different kind of martyrdom. Uh, that is tied to the ascetic life. And so they enter into the desert, guided by the spirit and desire for God. And this, the spirituality and the wisdom is forever available to the faithful. And, uh, but it, again, it's not as though we are to mimic uh, the practices in detail that we're meant to embrace the wisdom of it within our spiritual life. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons I asked the question earlier uh, before looking at some of the comments here that what, what does it mean to be a struggler for us and in terms of our zeal for God? And I think it becomes a, a, an important question. I, I've mentioned before St. Francis of Assisi you know, asking himself those two questions, almost like a little mantra every day during his prayer, or like a, like a prayer, we would say, who are you, God? Who am I 
to confront himself with these fundamental realities. Who is God to him truly? And who am I? How am I living my life? Is it reflective of one who's truly a disciple of Christ, who follows a master who bore witness to this self-emptying love that we see on the cross and in the Holy Eucharist? And so I think we are called in our life to ask ourselves a similar question. Are, are we strugglers? Are we true disciples of Christ? Is there this desire within us that makes us want to conform ourselves to the teachings of Christ, even if it sets us apart from the rest of the world around us? And are we willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to do that? And for every generation, I think what those sacrifices look like is going to be different. And, you know, this is why there's important for saints in every age, you know, those who embrace the gospel fully, you know, who become icons of the gospel, living icons of the gospel for us, who become, you know, these uh, lights that are present to us in the moment and are very, in a very concrete way uh, to show us what heroic faith and love look like. Uh, Babington follows up with, I get that saturated trusting submission and I've tasted it as secret towards the teacher, but not a whole year of unhealthy fasting. As you clarify, extremes aren't the way, but I'll go back and listen to the podcast. Perhaps I misunderstood him and you. So sorry, if so, much love and gratitude. No, you know, I, I understand why there's hesitation there. And uh, I'm going to be doing a group for the students here and uh, we'll live stream it here. It's the beginning, the first Sunday of February on the topic to love fasting, where I'm going to talk specifically about the practice of fasting in the Christian's life, but also the regular fasting that we see in the fathers and why it became a practice that was loved and uh, specifically how they avoided extremes. Uh, you know, this example, you know, I'm not going, uh, you know, it would be hard for me to argue that it isn't extreme because he was already keeping this regular fast and it's extended to a second day. But I think this, again, this individual was unique. I don't think we would want to sort of uh, project it out onto the overall practice of fasting among the fathers. Okay, but if you're interested, you know, uh, follow along in that uh, podcast. That's the first Sunday of February. And if you want to read it on your own, there's a book called To Love Fasting by Adelbert de Vogue, an excellent read, where he talks about this specifically and in detail. Okay. Uh, let's see, we're on number three, I believe, right. The following incident is told about Abba John the Short. He once visited an elder who lived in a skeet of the Thebaid. He took up residence near him in the desert. It was said of Abba John that his spiritual father once took a dry stick and planted it in the ground. Water it every day with a pitcher of water, he told John, until it bears fruit. The water was so far away from the cells that one had to set out the evening before in order to return in the morning. After three years, the dry stick budded and produced walnuts. Then the spiritual father of this obedient disciple took the nuts, brought them into the church of the skeet, and said to the brethren, take and eat the fruit of obedience. Uh, as we go through these stories, and as we get in, work our way into the next hypothesis, we, we begin to see that there's something that is certainly transformative interiorly about obedience uh, for the individual who embraces it. Uh, but it's transformative on this very powerful level, that, it, that one begins to experience uh, something of, of the life of God. Uh, that is supernatural. 
in the sense that we, we begin to see a participation uh, in the grace of God to such an extent that uh, that which is miraculous begins to take place. And this little story of Abba John the Dwarf, he's sometimes called, or Abba John the Short, uh, is pretty well known, uh, watering a stick stuck in the ground for years. Uh, it seems nonsensical. It seems to go against reason and right judgment, but it is a reflection of, of obedience that points us again to the obedience of Christ, even unto death. Uh, and a self-emptying again in the incarnation that goes beyond reason, that he was infinite, he who through, through, all, through whom all creation came into being, makes himself, allows himself to become an infant, infons, wordless one. So the word of God becomes one incapable of words in order to take upon himself our every aspect of who we are as human, a human being and embraces this in a spirit of obedience, uh, not only in terms of embracing our humanity, but embracing it in all of its poverty, but also making himself the servant and the slave of us all in order to redeem us. And so the examples that we have of obedience of these monks, uh, as I said, they, they become living icons in some ways of, of the gospel and living icons of Christ himself, directing us toward him, windows, if you will, doors that reveal to us something of this of the divine of this obedience and this love that is unconditional and that offers itself completely even to the point of becoming our very nourishment uh think about it for a moment you know when we read the gospel and christ says unless you eat my body and drink my blood you have no life within you for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink and they think that he's out of his mind. Half of his disciples leave, we are told, leave his company at that moment because they think that he's fallen in into not only a kind of heresy, but madness. How is it that someone should give us his flesh to eat? And, uh, and so, you know, these examples here, uh, you know, I don't think we're meant to look at them as a curiosity, to read them as entertainment. I think we, we read them in such a way, and we've talked about this from the beginning, you know, we're not to fall, we're not to become dilettantes, you know, those who are well-read in the fathers. Uh, the deep reading that we're doing serves one purpose, and it's to, to bring us to Christ, or it fails, or we fail, you know, if it's simply a, a curiosity. And so, these their lives have to become this for us you know windows doors to the divine where we capture a glimpse and in a very concrete way of what is revealed to us in its perfection on the cross and in the holy eucharist and in the incarnation so you know sticking a stick in the ground and watering it for three years uh I don't imagine seems any more absurd to us than our God taking our humanity upon himself and making himself the slave of all and giving himself to us as our food and drink. And, uh, you know, perhaps we take it for granted because there's a familiarity there and we lose sight of uh, just how extraordinary that is and how it turns our perception of reality on its head, but also what it means to live as a human being. If we are to become what we receive, it means that we are to become Eucharist. We're to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out in love. And, uh, and so this kind of obedience that the elders are seeking to teach these uh, disciples you know, is not meant to have little slaves running around doing their bidding. It's meant ultimately to allow them to set aside their will in smaller ways in order than, that when they are called perhaps 
to let go of their willfulness in a greater way or have to endure greater sufferings uh, for the sake of God, even martyrdom, that they are willing to do it out of love. And I think when we lose sight of that and when we no longer have that lens in reading the fathers, then it, again, it can fall into something that's like a curiosity or seems uh, to be absurdity for us. It's seen in the light of love, of desire, but more importantly, seen in the light of Christ, then we, we begin to see what emerges from them. And so looking at this in our life, you know, you know, there are probably many ways in our lives where we felt that we've been watering a stick. And for some of us, more than three years of time, uh, where we are engaged in something where we are doing it out of love, even though it doesn't seem to produce any consolation or fruit for us, that we're responding to something deeper in our life, uh, a call from God to remain faithful to a vow or a commitment, even though over the course of time uh, that has changed us or asked so much of us that we've had to set aside, you know, our willfulness or you know certain things that would have been enriching personally to us in order to serve and give ourselves in service to others. And so, you know, stick, watering a stick for three years, probably, you know, in comparison to the dying to self and selfishness that is necessary in married life or in taking care of children, you know, where you're responsible for every need at every single moment of the day, and you do that out of love, not because you love changing poopy diapers or waking up every two hours during the night. You know, you're, you're doing it out of this obedient love that is Christ-like. So, you know, watering a stick somehow, you know, okay, doing that for three years is tough, but I don't think it's any tougher than being, you know, married or raising children or being how about being faithful with a chronic illness, you know, that people go through? You know, I've talked to so many over the course of time where they're in agony every single day, you know, by, by something that's unexplained. And yet they hold on in faith and love of God and reach out to him in prayer, even though uh, that the cross that they bear does not seem to produce any fruit that in the eyes of the world or even in the eyes of those who are faithful seems to be worth very much. But in the eyes of God can mean everything. Uh, I've mentioned here before, you know, I can't remember who said it, one of the saints, but he said, you know, in the saints, what we see is the least of them. You know, that even the sanctity that we see and the acts that they performed or the depth of their prayerfulness is the least of them in terms of the action of God's grace and what, what, what he's done with, within their hearts. And I, to be honest with you, I've met a lot of saints over the, over the years and they're completely hidden. You know, I think everybody looks at the world and, you know, is, and sees the chaos and the upheaval and it's frightening and agitating to no end. But, you know, when you're in the confessional or when you're talking to people, you know, in, you know, counseling or spiritual direction, you see, oh my goodness, you know, there, here is someone who doesn't even realize it. And that's the beautiful thing about it, that they, that there is this deep love and faith that is close to perfect. And they wouldn't even see themselves as a man or woman of faith because of the nature of their particular struggle. So that was a long digression, sorry about that. Uh, any, any other comments here? Anthony, 
Uh, I suggest the stick was a fig branch. It's not entirely unreasonable to have him do this. Figs take about three years to fruit, and this is one way of how you start them. I've done it. Yeah, uh, that could, except it produced walnuts, not figs. <laughs> but uh, I, I get your point that it could have been something that would, uh, you know, he could have asked him to do something that would eventually bloom uh, in order that he might be able to hold him up as this example. But um, I, follow, I like to look at, at it as being miraculous that, you know, the fruit of obedience. And so whether or not it was a, a fig branch or a branch from a walnut tree uh, is no matter. I mean, it's really the obedience that allows it to bear fruit because he watered it for three years. Okay, number four. One time a man came from the ascetics of the Thebaid to, to Abba Sizos, wishing to become a monk. The elder asked him, do you have anyone in the world? I have a son, he replied. Then go and throw him into the river and then come and be a monk. The man went off to carry out the order of Abba Sizos. In the meantime, however, the elder sent another monk behind him to prevent it if in fact he should attempt to do this. When he was preparing to throw his son into the river, the brother was to prevent him from doing so, ran, ran up to him. Leave me alone, he protested. The Abba told me to throw him into the river. But the same Abba, replied the brother, instructs you by way of me not to throw him in. He then left the boy and returned to the elder and became a novice monk. This story is similar to that of Pater Muthius, which Abacassian related. So here we, we see something certainly that is reminiscent of the story of Abraham and Isaac, uh, a testing of faith that goes to the level uh, of one would, would say absurdity, but that runs against natural human sensitivities and sensibilities. And uh, you know, certainly I don't think any priest or any spiritual elder should tell the, uh, the one coming them to do something like this. But again, I think it's being held out for us, you know, from this, you know, the, the desert where they had entered into this new kind of martyrdom, this dying to self and self-will as something that is a, a window, a door that reveals something to us, allows us to gaze upon something. Again, it's the faith that is perfect, the faith of Abraham that is able to hear the, the word of God calling even in extreme circumstances or when it would cost everything. And again, we, we see this in the gospel, uh, certainly Christ calling people, you know, go sell all you possess and give it to the poor and come follow me. And, uh, and dropping everything. I mean, we need to look no further than the apostles who leave their, their nets, boats, their father behind to follow after him. Because it's not simply following uh, a guru, uh, you know, a wise man, a prophet, a philosopher. You know, it's following he who is the word of God incarnate, love incarnate. And, you know, the human heart has the capacity to see that. And if the elder is conformed to Christ in every way, he's only going to bear witness to the love of Christ, that he's going to be transparent. Let's put it this way. He's going to be transparent to the love of Christ, that all that another is going to be able to see in him is Christ. And so it tells us something not only about what obedience means you know this willingness to drop everything to follow christ because in him is found everything but also tells us what we are to be for others within the world that we are to be so conformed to christ and transformed by that love that we are to become him through what we receive that others see him and hear him and what we say and do and desire that, come to desire that, not us. I mean, I think part of the problem with Christians today is that uh, 
we aren't windows. We come, become doors without win windows. We block, we become an impediment to others seeing Christ or hearing the truth of the gospel. And, uh, and so we have to ask ourselves, you know, have, have our hearts be, been purified? Do we love Christ to such an extent? Uh, and have we interiorized what it is that we re receive in the Holy Eucharist to such an extent that others can see us and, and hear, see him and hear us and hear him in us? In some ways, that's the more challenging. You know, the, the role of the elder here is the more challenging thing than the obedience, you know, because it's saying, you know, you, you can only be in this role if you have conformed yourself, if you're truly a confessor of the faith, that your very being, every word, every deed, deed your demeanor, the look in your face is a, a reflection of Christ. You know, it, when a person enters into seminary, even to fill the role that we are called to, it should fill them with fear and trembling. You know, too, too often it's put forward as, you know, a vocation or a job or where one's talents and abilities come into play. And when I think when we read things like this, you know, it's meant to be like a bucket of cold water to say, no, you know, what we are to bear witness to has more to do with the grace of God and our, our faith in him and willingness to give ourselves over to him completely. And when somebody does that, they don't even have to say a word or their speech might be broken and yet they bear witness to, to Christ perfectly. Any comments on this little story? Okay. I think the reference to Abraham certainly is clear enough there, certainly for us too. Number five, one of the fathers recounted the following story. An educated and pious man, Theopolis, regularly visited a certain recluse, begging him to accept him and to make him a monk. Go and sell your possessions, the elder told him, and distribute them to the poor as the Lord commands. And when you return, I will accept you. That pious man went off, and after doing as he had been instructed by the recluse, returned. Now you must keep yet another commandment, the recluse said to him, do not speak. The man agreed to this and remained five whole years with the recluse without saying even a word. All those who knew him began to praise him. As soon as the recluse learned of this, he said, I'm sorry. As soon as the recluse learned of this, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. Uh, he said to him, my son, you are no longer deriving any benefit from being here. For this reason, I shall send you to a synobium in Egypt. And so he sent him on his way. But when he was leaving, the recluse did not tell the man either to speak or not to speak. Preferring to keep his obedience, he resided at the synobium without speaking. The abbot of the Snobium that took him in wanted to find out for himself whether the man was naturally mute. So he sent him off to do a task which required him to cross a river, which at the time was flooding, knowing that the brother would have to return to the Snobium and say that he had been unable to cross it. No sooner had that pious monk approached the river and seen it flooding than he fell to his knees. And at once there came along a crocodile which took him on its back and carried him across the opposite shore. Meanwhile, the abbot sent a monk behind the brother to see what he would do. As soon as the monk saw the amazing sight, he returned and reported it to the abbot and to the brethren who were astonished when they heard it. After a period of time, the monk died and the abbot informed the recluse who had sent him, although the one you sent us did not have a voice, he was an angel of God. The recluse then replied to the abbot, he was not mute by nature. However, he did not speak because of a commandment that I gave him when he came to me for the first time. When the monks of the Snobium heard of this exploit, they marveled and glorified God, 
Uh, wow. So again, you know, this example of obedience, you know, one who's willing uh, to conform himself to the teachings of the gospel, go sell all you possess, give it to the poor, follow me. He does this in an exacting way and comes back uh, to the recluse and then embraces silence in a radical way. Do not speak uh, in order that he might listen. Again, ab adere, obedience, uh, that he might embrace this obedience in order to hear something far greater, to hear the word of God, the word of love spoken within his heart. And, you know, when he sees others, though, praising him, uh, what is endangered is the humility of this uh, very holy young man. And so he sends him off to a synopium, a monastery where he would be under obedience, uh, uh, not only to the abbot, but would also have to live with these rough and willful, sometimes willful characters in a monastery and have to uh, be tested in a different way. And on the way, makes the decision to hold on to his obedience to the recluse and, uh, and, and yet fulfills everything that he's asked to do, even to the point of uh, when, when confronted with what seemed to be impossible, the crossing of a flooded river, his first response is to kneel down and to pray that wanting to remain ever faithful in this obedience to the recluse, he asked God for the grace and it's provided for him. And so what, what becomes uh, uh, most powerful, I think, is, is this example where it is, again, unknown that he is not mute. Uh, but rather that there was uh, a perfection there in his obedience that kept him to that silence. And this is, again, is what makes them marvel. Not the fact that he crosses the river on a crocodile, which is sort of extraordinary enough, but that he was able to maintain a perfect, not only a perfect silence, but obedience to the recluse whose charge he was no longer under. And so, again, you know, we're presented with this example of a kind of obedience that seems unreasonable. And, and from our perspective, you know, certainly to, uh, uh, to live and not speak uh, seems to be impossible, you know, certainly seems to be an impossibility for us and uh but for one who's going into the monk seeking to be the disciple of a recluse not an extraordinary thing to ask him to do you know to test really if the life was for him uh but it becomes though uh he becomes though an example of the perfect perfection of a virtue uh for all of us certainly who read it but for the other other monks not the perfection, certainly, of simply remaining silent, uh, but holding on, again, to the will of another in, the, in a way that is reminiscent to, to Christ holding on to the will of his Father, even at the greatest cost, allowing himself uh, to be scourged, to be beaten, um, and, you know, this is something that we're asked further on or in the next hypothesis to reflect upon directly, you know, to think upon the cost of the obedience of he who is the word of God, again, allowing himself to be beaten, spat upon, uh, crucified, uh, and our unwillingness, perhaps, uh, to imitate uh, the, the, very, the very behavior that brought us salvation. Ashley. We don't often come upon stories, though I know there have been a few, of brothers who were stirred to anger or resentment in keeping of their obedience. Is there a correlation between being purified of anger 
and the lack of an interior movement that might convince someone that the authority figure is lording their commands over the one being called to obedience. Uh, actually, in the latter divine ascent, we've moved to uh, reading in particular about uh, anger and meekness. And so living in obedience. And so Climacus makes this direct correlation that you're speaking of, that he moves from the step on obedience of setting aside one's own will to the purification of the passion of anger that this allows us to have, uh, as we've talked about before, uh, a faculty of the soul, the insensitive faculty that allows us to struggle against and hate sin, that aggressive part of the self, to be formed and transformed by divine love, and so become meekness. So whatever uh, our anger reveals to us, uh, that we are able to respond to it in, in a measured and tempered way, a way that's been tempered by divine love. Again, not simply guided by our own reason and judgment of what we see and perceive exteriorly, but what God reveals to us through the gift of his love that allows us then to respond to that appropriately. And so obedience does, I guess, an answer to your question, you know, this living in obedience does help ultimately to purify the heart from the passion of anger as well. So I don't know, do you have a follow up to that question or what? So our anger can point, she, she writes, Ashley writes, to us, the areas in our life where we need to grow in virtue so that we can be perfectly obedient. Uh, it can, uh, you're right, because it often will reveal to us where we are holding on to our own will. You know, it can reveal to us where there's injustice, uh, of course, but it can also reveal to us where we are willing to judge others simply by externals, by what we see, uh, or that we're willing to judge somebody at all, or that when somebody insults us, that we are focused more on protecting our own dignity than we are on loving even those who hate us or who would do us evil. And, uh, and so it does reveal uh, to us, our anger can reveal to us what it is that we are struggling with still within our life. Uh, again, in our own day and age, I think it's, you know, aggression is a part uh, of who we are as human beings, you know, love and aggression and aggression, uh, we often, it has a negative connotation because so often it's tied to our sinfulness, but it also allows us to act, you know, it's part of our volition, our will that is important. And so in the spiritual life, uh, the, the fathers don't set it aside. You know, these guys weren't doormats. I mean, they understood that they were engaged in a spiritual battle, but they needed to direct that anger to the true enemy, which is the evil one, uh, or to the particular passion, not to the person that is standing before them. And uh, And so, you know, everything about who we are as human beings it has to be touched by the grace of God and purified by that grace. So that brings us to 830. Uh, again, you know, I know there are a lot of challenging stories here for us to read. Uh, and the only thing that I can counsel, again, is to slow down and sit with them and try to see and listen to them uh, in some of the ways that I was at least alluding to or suggesting here, you know, that it's really the, the monks themselves were that there were these living icons and that they open us up to see something greater than themselves or even the nature of these stories. What we are meant to see is what has been revealed to us in Christ 
and how it is that we are called to live that reality in all of its fullness. And sometimes we can only be jarred out of a kind of complacency or sloth uh, in the spiritual life uh, by something that is unvarnished or really seems crazy to us, to be quite honest with you. Uh, because we, we've lost that ability to be surprised by the gospel, you know, to be shocked, to, to rip our garments and say, no, you know, that this is, you know, heresy, uh, which is what most of the people were doing every time Christ opened up his mouth. And, uh, you know, we receive it and accept it uh, on a certain level. But is it really touching us at the depth of our religiosity, at the depths of our souls to the point that it brings about conversion or that it provokes a greater desire for God? And, you know, sometimes these stories do it. You know, when you read about, about them, you have to ask yourself, am I a struggler? Do I desire God? Okay, so be at peace. Don't run away. Come back again. There's more to think about. Uh, all right, why don't we close as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.